I wonder which moments in your life do you remember clear as day? I wonder what events uh, that you will always remember where you were when you heard that they happened, uh, whether they were good or bad, you said, no way, can't believe that's happened. For me, and in chronological order, just as I thought about it this week, for me, those are, first of all, the death of Princess Diana. Then it was Manchester United winning the treble. Uh, Then it was Y2K, the year 2000. Uh, Then it was 9-11. And then it was uh, Felix Baumgartner's fall from space. Uh, Then it was Brexit. Then the Trump election. And then it was the death of Queen Elizabeth II. Those, just as I thought about it this week, those are the moments that I uh, remember thinking, what is going on, or I can't believe that's happened Uh, There's things that will live with me, and I'm sure more will be added. But I wonder what those things are for you. Is it a victory of some kind? Is it maybe a war? Maybe it's a a death or just an historic moment? You will likely notice that these are something that you share with uh, thousands, if not millions, of other people. Some of those were important for you and for your people while others affected many millions of people all around the world. Turn with me to the book of uh, Ezra, uh, there in the Old Testament. It's just after First and Second Chronicles. And if you get to Job, Psalms, or Proverbs, uh, you've gone too far. And really, for the Israelites there, that's the young and the old. Uh, we're in about 586 uh, BC, uh, when Jerusalem collapsed to the invading Babylonians, This uh, was a moment in their history that they would never forget. This is what leads us to the moment that we come to today. This disobedient people of God, they'd been scattered from their homeland there for half a century with two generations of people now having adapted or died under another sun, under a different sky, far from home, away from their beloved Jerusalem and very much in the bowels of Babylon. Their children had been influenced heavily by another culture, their heads bowed before another king, their songs of worship really now just weary whispers these years later. New new foods, new smells, new sounds. The story This fall of Jerusalem would live long in the collective mind of the Israelite people. A moment that many would never forget that for centuries and millennia to go, they would never forget. All the guilt, the shame of those fallen uh, so far. Uh, That pain and the anguish never forgotten. As we enter their world this morning, About 2,500 years ago, it's important that we know the people whose history we're going to be looking at and what God was doing among them at this point and how this is really important for our life today. So really through the next two weeks, we're going to be going through just this short book and together I think we're going to see several uh, big themes, big moments, big takeaways for us as we encounter uh, another monumental moment 
So we had the fall of Jerusalem and now we turn to this return to Jerusalem. Friends, I think we're going to see how God is faithful no matter what is going on around us. You see how God has called a people to himself and how he makes covenants with them. And then through these covenants, we see uh, that he calls to himself a people that are to be holy and set apart. How his people have received his word. And this is the most powerful thing that he's given them. Uh, really, this whole book, I think, splits into about two different sections. And so today we have this first section in chapters one to six. I'm not going to read all six chapters for us. Uh, this morning, that some of you might be glad to hear that. But I'm just going to fly us over some key verses. So if you've got Ezra open, uh, look there at Ezra 1, verse 1. And we're just going to walk through, and I'm going to read for us several key passages uh, through these first six chapters. So Ezra 1, verse 1 reads, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. Carries on. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, whoever is among you of all of his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Then verse 5, then rose up the heads of the father's house of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. I then scan to chapter 2, verse 1, which reads, Now there were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpah, Bigvi, Rahim, and Banah. Then scan down to verse 68, chapter 2, which reads, Some of the heads of the families, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, made freewill offerings for the house of God to erect it on this site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 darics of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priests' garments. In chapter 3, verse 2, Reads, then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. And 3 verse 10, and when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. The old men who had seen the first house wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundations of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy. In chapter 4, verse 4, Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purposes all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of 
Ahuserus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. Then skip to chapter 6, verse 14, which reads, This house was finished on the day of the month of Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And then 6.16, And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles, celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. Then finally, verse 20. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean, so they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests and for themselves. So as you can see, there's a a lot going on. There's a lot to, uh, to read and scan through. Uh, and as we examine these first six chapters, we're going to uh, go back to uh, Ezra 1 verse 1 and work our way through to the end uh, there. As we examine these six chapters together, I think the main point of this section is, and this is going to be the main point of our time together, no matter who is on the throne and who stands against us, God keeps his promises and is worthy of our praise. No matter who is on the throne and who stands against us, God keeps his promises and is worthy of our praise. And we've got two points. The first of these we're going to be looking at is God keeps his promises. And that's in chapters 1 and 2. God keeps his promises. So Ezra 1 verses 1 to 4 there begins just with this incredible account. This monumentous point in this history of the people of God where we see a pagan king named here as Cyrus having taken over from Nebuchadnezzar. And now we see this preamble before his proclamation there to the people of God in verse 1. Historically, chronologically, we see this quote from a published decree by a Persian king Uh, something published and acknowledged elsewhere in official documents in ancient history. We have a time. We have a person here. This is a real event, a real declaration by a real king. Something quite extraordinary, though, follows this explanation. says that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. So much is jam-packed in there. God is speaking clearly through Cyrus. And what he says is fulfilling an old prophecy. He is directly, God is directly using here a pagan king to announce and bring about what he wants. Make no mistake, Cyrus here is one of the most powerful men in the whole world with resources, with power unimaginable at his fingertips. And there from the very outset... We're meant to see that this, this time and time again, this major theme through this book, that nothing, nothing in this whole world, even King Cyrus and all of his power, nothing is beyond the control of God for his purposes and for the good of his people. What an amazing thing just to to kick off. Friends, I want you to know that and remember that this morning, that nothing is beyond the hand of our great God. Not your Christian or non-Christian manager at work. Not your non-Christian neighbor. Not your non-Christian parents and what they say about your life or your faith. All of our lives, everything in them sits 
in the perfect hand of God. Trust his providence. Trust his providence. And Ezra here references Jeremiah. You see that? And this points directly to what the prophet says earlier in Jeremiah 25. Uh, There God promises, and I'll quote, it says, Because you have not obeyed my words, you will serve the kingdoms of the north for 70 years. The people of God are far away, all due to their disobedience. And then we see that God has orchestrated this punishment for them. And as Daniel prays in Daniel 9, he says, All Israel had transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. People of God are banished from the promised land, unable to live and worship as they had, yet God promises an end. God promises deliverance, restoration. And here we see Cyrus being used to do this. I think there from verse 2, you'd not be mistaken if you think it looks like Cyrus is a believer in Yahweh. Uh, But actually we know from other ancient documents that this is the kind of language that uh, Cyrus adopted when he spoke to many different uh, groups and tribes. He used the language that they use. So we don't think uh, that Cyrus... Uh, is a believer in Yahweh. But he's clearly not wrong in what he's saying. That God has given him all that he has. We know it is God who has stirred his heart. It was really uh, common for kings uh, to use any God possible for their benefit. And I think we see that uh, today in our world. Uh, Leaders willing to use uh, any God or anything to their own leverage, uh, to leverage their own power uh, or make it look or sound like uh, they have a particular God on their side. In Cyrus, we see a great example, and we've just done it, of why we should continue to pray for our leaders and those in authority over us. Perhaps you wonder why we do this uh, every week. Uh, But we should be in no doubt, friends, that the Lord uses our leaders clearly for his purposes. I think the way we received uh, the land here in this building is a great example of that. Uh, Sheikh Saud giving permission uh, for us to build and for us to gather here in the way that we do. The Lord clearly using him for uh, God's purposes Uh, in this place so that we could gather together so that many could hear the gospel of Jesus Christ being preached regularly, week in and week out. Our first importance here uh, for the people of God, it is worship that God requires. And so Cyrus uh, goes on to remind the people uh, to be building the temple. The temple, he says, is the house of the Lord. We see how the Israelites have freedom to do it or freedom Uh, from Cyrus, uh, but also a free will to choose or not to choose whether to do it or not. This rebuilding here is given a purpose uh, for their return, whether they realize it or not. This is what they are returning home to do. This is why they are going back to, to build, but ultimately to worship. That is their purpose. This choice here given to them at acknowledges that this is not an easy or a straightforward choice. 
they know that they would be a, a vulnerable people, that there would be a cost to this obedience, not just the, the long journey back, but living back uh, in a place that, as we all know, when you move away from somewhere, nowhere remains the same. They might struggle, there might be uh, opposition when they return. And in verse 4, we see uh, then how this is going to happen. It is to be built with some of what uh, was taken by the Babylonians, but also with, and it says there, free will offerings for the house of God. Free will offerings. Now this kind of list writing that we see is not uncommon in the ancient world. And that what this means is that coupled with the, the well-documented amounts that were taken from Jerusalem by the Babylonians, the rebuilding of the temple is also going to happen by the hands and with the offerings of the people. What amazing, uh, what's amazing is that it's the same with us. With our presence here, with our prayers, uh, and also with our pennies week in and week out, God invites us invites us guilty sinners to be involved what he is doing here among us what he is doing in this city that is how this land as we said was granted and how this building was built just by the ordinary giving of christians both here and elsewhere it's how we're able to run internships uh, care for each other, see the gospel go forth. That's through uh, the generosity that God has put on your hearts to, to give financially uh, week in and week out. If you're a member here, then you have agreed to do this. This is uh, part of our responsibility. Uh, and you give regularly here to the gospel uh, work in this church. If you're a Christian, then giving regularly is meant to be an ordinary part of both your worship uh, but also your participation in where God has planted you. That doesn't mean necessarily giving here, but if you're a member of another church, give regularly to your church. It's how the, God uses that. God takes that and uses that for the ministry to go forth in that place. And as chapter 1 uh, concludes, uh, we see that many answered this particular call. And wonderfully, uh, verse 11 reads, they came up from Babylon to Jerusalem. People had held on. Their parents and grandparents had experienced so much, but as that decree went out, some people stayed. That was their choice entirely. Many people, many Israelites left Babylon and made that long trip back. I wonder, was it posted in the city square somewhere? Did someone announce it publicly? Did little groups get together and decide to go? Or as the 42,360 people moved out, did they just begin to meet one another on the road uh, that led south? Silently seeing each other and nodding, knowingly acknowledging the fact that they had to go back had to go back no matter the cost either way they went without a king without the ark of the covenant no stone tablets left no jar of manna or Aaron's staff to take home but they went what we're seeing in these chapters is packed full of history 
of lists, of kings, all sorts. But ultimately, it is what God is doing here that's important. The Bible uh, that you hold in your hands, it is God's story, how he interacts with his people. And how I hope you see as we uh, move through this book that how he is sovereign over all things. He has made a way. He is carrying his people. Even in their disobedience, it is his grace and mercy that prevails. And it's the same with us and our sin. None of us deserve the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. In our rebellion, uh, each one of us deserves death and the wrath of God. Friends, for each one of us, that should be our punishment. Yet, Jesus brings deliverance. Like the people here, their hope is not found in themselves and how hard they work or are about to work, how well they behave. Their hope is all found in God. For you this morning, I don't know what kind of week you've had, but you can have hope in Jesus Christ. Jesus has achieved this through his life and his death and his resurrection all for you. So that no matter what, you don't need to depend on yourself, to depend on how obedient you've been. But simply, uh, Christ says, come to me, bring those things to me, rest in me, trust in me. What a hope you can have in Christ if you trust in him. As we swiftly move on to and and through chapter 2, we'll see those long lists. We see that uh, this is a group, uh, this group, sorry, is a representative Israel. Uh, We see that Shez Bazaar is mentioned in verse 11, and then we see 11 more leaders uh, in chapter 2 named, including their leader, Zerubbabel. Uh, We see the 12 leaders uh, acknowledged, this representative Israel taking place. It is Zerubbabel uh, that Haggai will be delivering his prophecy to, uh, to encourage and challenge the people. And we're going to come back to this. Uh, These are the the heads of the households. This is the priests, the singers, and all these names that you look down there at chapter 2 on. All these names, these individuals are able to trace their heritage all the way back to Jerusalem. That link had been preserved. This promises had been clung to by God's people. This redemption anticipated These names, this history, this lineage all secured what was theirs, what God himself had promised. Like those uh, Americans that returned to the UK looking for uh, the king or the kingdom or the castle that once was there generations uh, before, now uh, broken and disappeared and never to be found. Greater than that is uh, for these people, their names uh, written on a list. Uh, so that they knew that they were welcome. This Jerusalem was their home. We see here from this list, the people of God are one, but they are also many. We see here that the people of God have names. That they are known uh, to him. That he cares about each individual named there, that household. And the family is represented And we know that out of Babylon, that the line 
was likely long, stretching far across the horizon. Villages on the way, coming out to see these foreigners meandering past their town. There's people excited, yet terrified. There's people not prisoners anymore, but with labor, hard labor required on their arrival. Monumental in their minds was the task that lay ahead of this mass of men and women, the the makers and the mothers, the workers and the weak among them, all welcomed by their gracious God. No doubt on that four-month long journey home, they would have continually had to remind each other what it was that they were doing, why they were doing what they were doing. Friends, I know that you understand that this is the same with the Christian life today, over and over again. They would have talked, they would have sung, they would have prayed, they would have reminisced. And then would have come that drumbeat that should drive their lives, that drives ours. It is the glory of God for the praise of His holy name. This is man's purpose. Friends, this is your purpose Make no mistake about that. Young or old, African or Asian, male or female, your purpose on this earth is to glorify God and to praise His holy name. This is why you are to to work diligently at your jobs. It's why you are to love abundantly in your relationships. It's why you are to care deeply uh, for those who live in your house and across the road. It's why you are to sing loudly. This is why we meet regularly to encourage each other in the faith as well as walking alongside, that is, doing life with each other through the good and the bad, reminding each other daily of who God is, why it is that we're doing what we're doing. How do we do it? All for the praise of His name. This is why these exiles walked the way they did, straight uh, there into our second point, walking For the glory of God. Our second point is God is worthy of our praise. God is worthy of our praise. We're going to be looking at chapters 3 to 6. God is worthy of our praise. And as chapter 3 opens, we meet a united people that Ezra describes as gathered as one man. See, unity among believers is something to be treasured, something to be prayed for. And here we see that is a gift from God. It was also a promise of God in all that he said to Abraham that a people from every tongue and tribe and nation would come together. We heard that in John 1 as, we, as Andre read. A people not by blood but by the will of God brought together. And as the people return at this crucial time in Israelite history, we see these promises of God back on track for a people brought together to live in the land God had promised and to await his kingdom being established. And to see the people back in Jerusalem, as we've said, all for the glory of God is so significant and such a huge point of celebration for the people. And it is clearly God that has done it all. It is God that deserves all the honor and all the praise. 
I wonder in your day-to-day life, if you're like me at all, how quickly you forget this. We get a new job. We're able to buy a new car. We get some success. We receive some good news. Someone encourages us, pats us on the back saying, man, you're doing a great job. Carry on. How quickly do we begin to think, actually, yeah, I've, you know, I've worked pretty hard. I deserve these things. I've got these things because I'm doing a really good job. I'm kind of a big deal. How often do we think these kind of things? I think this is tempting for all of us. But actually, as we see here, our immediate impulse should be to turn and give God the glory, to lift up His name and praise all that He has done. If we truly believe that He is sovereign, then this praising of Him should be our immediate response. This priority, I think, is also why we see the priests named before the leader, there before Zerubbabel. The priority is worship. Before the temple is built, there must first be an altar. They've arrived right back at the Feast of Tabernacles. We know that a lot of blood is about to be spilled, and then burnt offerings and a tent-building festival. All of this to celebrate the coming Messiah. Looking back at the years in the wilderness and the deliverance of the people, this need for worship to focus the community and both look back at God's deliverance and look forward at His redemption. So important for the people of God. Whether they planned it or not, all of this coming back at a perfect time to unite the people. Exodus 3.12 says, But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. You shall serve God on this mountain. There in Exodus, we see that the reason for the first Exodus was worship. And we're reminded that it's the reason here for the second Exodus. Worship is the best way to deal with every situation. When we worship together with other believers, this is the best thing that we can do. It's the best thing we can do to build unity within our community. To worship and obey God as a a family here is the best way that we can honor Him in this land to the watching world. Friends, do not neglect this gathering. Make it a priority to be here each week. Try not to schedule other things during this time. This is such a key time. The only time we have each week to gather together as a church, as believers, as a family, all of us here united. Uh, Laura and I with our family, we visited Albania a few weeks ago. And it was such a joy, just in the the busyness of everything else we were doing in a a city break, in a capital city, walking around. Uh, On that Sunday morning, finding a church and just walking through the door to gather with other believers. What a joy that unity was. Tirana is a a capital city of Albania, and so the church was actually directly, like literally you came out the church door and you were met with 
the Iranian uh, embassy uh, to Albania, directly across the road. And wonderfully, that's exactly uh, what a church is, an embassy of the Lord uh, in that particular place, on that particular street, in that particular city. It was wonderful uh, to be in that gathering of people from different countries. And being there with those believers was different. It felt different. It looked different. It sounded different. We were in a different kingdom by walking through that door, by gathering with those other believers. All of it different to anything else, any other doorway we walk through in that whole city. Just this little outpost of the kingdom of God that we found through the joys of Google, bringing us to worship with other believers in this city. Our churches, friends, should be different. This gathering here should look and sound uh, different to the whole of Russell Keimer. It is uh, our unity, our care, our worship should all set us apart from the world that surrounds us. And I think the Israelites felt some of that here in verse 3. It says, fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. You know, the Israelites, they knew they had to worship, and so their altar was prepared, regardless of what the people who were already there thought. Worship was their starting point. It's the same uh, this week for our, our former interns, uh, Joseph and Sonam in Nepal, who planted a church this week. They had an interest or a prayer time uh, meeting on Friday, and then they met for the first time yesterday. Just in an upper room, about 25 uh, men and women. Just amazing photos and videos to see. This is what it's all about. They don't have a, a building yet, but they gathered with other believers. First and foremost, to lift praise and worship to God. Friends, what a wonderful thing this is. As the people here in our text begin to celebrate their festivals and tabernacles, they knew that the temple was about to begin. This promise of God's presence uh, would no longer just be a bedtime story of something that Nana and Grandpa experienced years ago. These celebrations came years and years uh, to remind a forgetful people of God's unfailing promises to Abraham and to his people. As we reach verse 8, we see that Zerubbabel and Jeshua begin to lay the foundation. This took some time. And through Haggai, we know that there was some encouragement and let's just say focusing of the minds of the people. Everything belongs to the Lord. He is worthy of all praise. And so the temple must be built. See that wood is ordered from Lebanon, which took some time. Workmen had been hired. Masons had been selected. Where there had been silence there for two generations and songs had ceased. Now again, we see that the voices were raised in praise to their holy God. In verses 10 to 13 of chapter 3, we witness there their first worship service back in Jerusalem. Our kids have been learning uh, Psalm 100 uh, recently, and I think we see every part of it here in these verses. Singing aloud to the Lord a joyful noise, declaring how good 
and great he is. We read there how his steadfast love endures forever. Friends, after all this time, after all that had happened, this was still true. This is still true today. God's love is steadfast, meaning it never fluctuates. It's it's constant. It's constant in its quantity. It's constant in its quality. And that never changes. And also that it endures forever, meaning that it's unending. It's unending through the good and the bad. It just still comes and comes, never ceasing, coming forever. I wonder how often have you said those words, but how little do we stop and consider their meaning? His steadfast love endures forever. He never changes His love never ends. He's not like us. He doesn't love like we do. He doesn't change like we do. Spend a week with me or just spend a day with me and you'll see how uh, my mood or my love changes. It chops and changes. It's not the same every day. Sometimes I'm grumpy. Sometimes it's lavish. Sometimes I'm quiet. Other times you might not even know what I'm thinking. But not God, his love is lavish and generous every day. His grace is unending towards his people. So his love never changes. His love is not dependent on them. It is, I would say, a marvelous mystery. That's all perfectly shown to us through the poured out sacrifice, the death and the resurrection of his only son, Jesus Christ. It's at the cross that we perfectly see this enduring, steadfast love displayed. A love that never faltered. A love that, friends, demands a response. It's either praise of Christ or rejection of Him. There's no in-between. You can't be indifferent towards the cross. Your rejection, if that's what it is, doesn't change the fact of the cross. It doesn't change what happened. That love of Christ, that blood poured out, that sacrifice given still remains. You can't remain neutral. I urge you to consider your own response to this lavish, steadfast love of God that endures forever. Think about that today. How do you respond to Jesus? See that this time of worship in the text carries on and the noise is huge. It says all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord. See the foundation stone was laid. The temple building had begun. What a key and crucial moment this was in the restoration process. Yet we see in verses 12 and 13 that many of the men were weeping. Not just weeping, but it says weeping loudly were old men. These were the oldest in the group, but they had seen the former temple. They remembered, they knew what it had been like, how as young boys they had clung to those memories. Yet they were disappointed, horrified at what they were now seeing. So troubled were these men by the outer appearance of what was happening, that we already see that they're not trusting the Lord like they should. 
that's what's happening here. Having been delivered, having been brought home, now given the opportunity to rebuild a, an even greater temple, as Haggai will say, they are weeping in dismay at what they see and ultimately weeping at what God has done. I think we too sometimes can long for former days instead of seeing what God is doing right now. Fail to see God's hand in our lives, even when things are difficult, perhaps in sickness, lying in a hospital bed or in suffering, in a situation we're struggling with that seems overwhelming. How quickly do we begin to grumble and shake our fists at God and say, how could you let this happening? We begin to think, we begin to listen to that lie that God is not in control when friends that could not be further from the truth. God does not let you down. God has not turned his back on you. God is with you through it all. These men here weeping, not trusting what God is doing. As the foundation is laid, though, as God's promises are shown to be true, we know that it is he that will assist each one of them, in what he has called them to do. It's the same for us. You may be experiencing a harder time than the person sitting next to you or in front of you, but God will equip you for everything that he is taking you through. God is not going to abandon you. If you trust him, he will provide all that you need. You may be able to take more than the person sitting next to you. You may be able to take less God knows that. God will equip you for all that he has for you. Nothing, friends, will thwart this rebuilding if this is what God has ordained, even the various types of opposition that we're going to see through this book. As we begin uh, there looking at chapter 4. Chapter 4, I think it's clear that no doubt tensions were high in Jerusalem. At this point, in recent months, you just had 40,000 people turn up. And then in chapter 4, we see how at various times in the coming months and years, people face opposition in their rebuilding. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, we see that happens in the time of Cyrus. Then in verse 5, it also happens under Darius. In verse 6, we see that it happens in the rule of Xerxes or uh, Translated as Ahasuerus, depending on your translation. And in verses 7 to 23, also in the time of Artaxerxes. This opposition is coming in waves, time and time again. It's coming in intimidation. It's coming through bribery of officials. It's coming through accusations and complaints, written letters to the rulers even formal letters as we see in verse 9 and following. I think Ezra includes these well-documented, again, formal letters of interest for the reader. These were real people in a real country, building a real temple for a real God. And there we see that people of God are accused of being thieves, tax avoiders, manipulators, conspirators. Yet there are people the same as you, no matter what their work colleagues might say about them, whatever their neighbors might accuse them of, there are people called to persevere, a people called to trust 
God through it all, to depend on his word. Friends, like you this morning, I'm encouraging you to take seriously the promises of God. Take seriously your worship of him. I think as Christians, when we understand and then remember our primary purpose is to glorify God and worship him, then everything in this world begins to drift and fade. Even the the suffering and difficulty of living day to day as a Christian. As I said, I'm not sure what your week has looked like. No doubt there have been sin struggles, moments of stress and frustration. Don't doubt that some of you are struggling with uh, deeply with loneliness or depression this morning. You've worried for months about the coming hot and lonely summer, and now it's here. Every day is difficult. I know that describes some of us this morning. Let me encourage you. I think as God would want to encourage you from this text that is 2,500 years old, that God is faithful. He has kept his promises. His promises to keep you and to deliver you. A promises to be present with you. See that he is true, that he has fulfilled these for us in a way that these people that we're reading about would not fully know or fully understand. We have known, we trust that Christ has come. This longed-for Messiah that they were hoping for has come. He has brought deliverance. That restoration is complete in Christ. I urge you, trust in Him. Lift up your voice in praise today. Cry out to Him in prayer. In your struggling, in your loneliness, in your weakness. Call out to Him. Lean on Him. He will not let you go. As chapters 4 and 5 go, we can see that these letters are written to try and discredit the people of God, written in an attempt to get those on the throne to not just pause the work on the temple, but to cancel it completely. Yet over and over again, you feel that drumbeat of just God guiding and keeping his people, never letting them go. The historical veracity, which just means historical truthfulness of this whole situation is fascinating. As we see these secular letters from foreign kings, well-documented kings, well-documented letters even, quoted at length. The officials' names and dates given to us, the when and what happened. The promises at the beginning of the letter given by King Cyrus, now enforced by King Darius. With Darius's decree, the temple construction in chapter 6 crosses the line. Temple construction is done. With a warning from Haggai and famine delivered by the Lord, we also see Haggai's prophecy confirmed as the wealth of the nation is poured out for God's glory. Their gold and silver given in large amounts so the temple could be finished, all overseen by Zerubbabel and Jeshua. Years after the destruction, no matter who was on the throne and no matter what opposition 
they faced, God was faithful. And he was worthy of their worship. Temple was complete. The mood was joyous. Yet there was a tinge of anticlimax. The temple was a, a beautiful picture of God's faithfulness rising out of the ashes of a, a burned and broken city, but there was no ark, no pillar of fire, no king. People did not fully understand that this was not the final temple, but a temporary sign of a greater living temple still to come. Yet on that day, there was one thing that remained, the final step, the completion of the process, and this was the shedding of the blood. Shedding and pouring out of the blood for the purification of the people. Sinful people set apart to worship a holy God, and none of this possible without sacrifice, without pouring out of blood to atone for their sins. Everything led to this point. Something had to be done. For decades, there had been no temple. So what they did, what they'd They did what they'd hoped to do for a long time. They found a a spotless lamb. Verse 20, chapter 6 tells us. And the blood spilled for the people and the priests dealing with their sin from years before, but not enough blood, not a lamb pure enough, not a sacrifice good enough that it was done once and for all. Friends, this annual celebration would roll around soon enough. But little did they know, I think they hoped for a time when this would end, but they couldn't quite imagine and understand what we now know, that there was to come another. There was to come a perfect priest and a gracious king, a spotless lamb who was himself the temple of God. Friends, all the elements that you see here laid out in these verses, all of them a sign. All of them pointing to the one who was to come. All of them pointing to Jesus Christ. Friends, it is Christ alone who deserves our praise and demands our holiness. It is he who provides a way for his people to be reconciled to himself by his own blood. Not the sacrifice of another lamb, but the sacrifice of the king of kings. It is he that is a sacrificial savior, a holy and a righteous king. It is he who keeps his promises and delivers finally his people. Friends, this is our Jesus. I want to remind you this morning that no matter who is on the throne or who stands against us, God keeps His promises. God has kept his promise to us. And he alone is worthy of our praise.